Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle. Oh, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a sneeze or a hiccup? Are you okay? Over that was there? a gasp. It was a gasp. It was a gasp because you're so amazed that we are recording remotely. Yep, over, exactly. I think, I think our eighth podcast. Yeah, we're of, cooking with gas, baby. The quarantine edition. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. Oh my god. I, oh as my I god. said, we are not we are not fucking around. And for those who, uh, um, well, for those who can't see, which is everyone but myself. Um, Louie, right now, we're doing this call on Zoom, and Louie, uh, you know, to celebrate the album we're talking about today, which is X's Los Angeles, he's got the album art as his background. I do. I put the album art on as <laughs> And he background. has an X hat on. And I'm wearing an X hat, which is- Do you what, have a cool t-shirt? Uh, well, I guess I'm actually wearing a Bella Lugosi Bride of the Monster t-shirt. Ooh, yes. It's a uh, cool t-shirt, but also I feel like it's in the world of uh, this album. Very much in the world of this <laughs> album, which, which I think we'll end up talking about. Yeah, yeah. And this X cap, which is one of my favorite hats, is like one of my two baseball hats. So <laughs> I, I bought it when I saw X play in uh, 2017. Nice. Which is the last time I saw them, which is... So weird, because they're such a constant in my concert-going life. Yeah. Yeah, they were supposed to play uh, literally a 10-minute walk from me uh, next month, but that's mm, not happening. Yeah. Yeah, such is life. Say lovey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and you know, this is our eighth podcast. Uh, remember when we started doing the quarantine, Kick the Jukeboxes, seven years ago? <laughs> yeah. It, um... Yeah, it really, uh, it feels like we've always been doing this. <laughs> I know, seriously. We've never not done this. There's no beginning and there is no end. <laughs> yep. So, uh, <laughs> you doing okay? <laughs> hey, I'm hanging in there. We did a, I did a, I think I mentioned before the call, um, this afternoon I did, uh, we did a Zoom call for my grandma's 80th birthday and, um, you know, I don't think you have to use uh, work too hard to use your imagination and, you know, picture 30 elderly Jews um, trying to figure out what gallery view is. Yes. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and you wrote a song with your brother for your grandma as well. We did. Very so, sweet. so, yes. So my mom was like, you have to do something nice for grandma. And so uh, my brother and I wrote a little song for her. Um, and just to, just to give you a sense of, you know, kind of where we were coming from, uh, one of the lines in the song is, um, grandma has three children and one of them is my mom. <laughs> grandma had two more children. They are my uncle and aunt. <laughs> I think I we like, nailed it. I like the, the slant rhyme you did with mom and aunt. You know, we worked it in. It's good. It's also very East Coast because, you know, my, uh, I would pronounce that word uh, aunt. Well, <laughs> yeah. <yes. so. laughs> aunt is, yeah, aunt is a, it's a very East Coast pronunciation. Aunt. Wonderful. <laughs> and what, what music have you been listening to this week, Kyle? This week, um, I have been listening to, I really, I've kind of always struggled with um, kind of getting my claws around power pop and what exactly that means and, you know, like where are the borders of that um, genre lie? I would argue the borders are really nebulous on power yes. pop specifically. Definitely. Yeah. So I think that's totally, totally valid. Although we, you do know it when you hear it, in my opinion. Yes. That's kind of the, that, uh, that clean songwriting, guitar-driven, uh, a little more up than a lot of other stuff from like the 70s, you know? Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but I think that kind of led, I was listening to like a lot of Cheap Trick and then I yes. kind of rediscovered the Raspberry or Raspberries and um, led by Eric Carmen, who turns out is a huge Trumper now. Um, Great. but, Love uh, it. just another one lost. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyways, I specifically 
revisited a lot. I was listening to a lot of the cars who I love and continue to love more and more as I get older. That's interesting because I thought you said one of the last times we hung out in person when we were still allowed to have our cough on each other parties, which is mainly what we were doing, that you weren't a big fan of the cars, that you considered them sort of mundane and dad-like. Well, that is that has been my journey, and specifically the album I, I was listening to this week that I kind of re- revisited is because when I was a kid, I wanted like hard, fast rock, yeah. and I kind of you know um, dug into my parents' CD collection, and you know the Cars were uh, so specifically it wasn't the Cars, it was the album Heartbeat City. Uh-huh. And I just thought it sounded super dated with yeah. like, it was like when they started getting really synthy. Yes. And I remember listening to that album as a kid and hating it. Sure. Um, and um, I, I sort of revisited that. I, I mean, I love the cars. I love Candy O. I love, um, I love the first album. I love, um, uh, you know, um, the song, um, yeah, just the, the actually the first album in Candio. Yes, <laughs> but uh, I was trying to think if there was anything else. But yeah, it's, those are my two favorites. But um, yeah, specifically that album Heartbeat City. I kind of revisited it and I listened to it while I was going on a run, and um, I'm I'm enjoying it more. I'll say I'm, I'm so proud of you. You've grown so much. That's yes. wonderful. Yeah. The the uh, the quarantine times, the pandemic has melted your heart when it comes to Heartbeat City. Yes, exactly right. Nailed it. <laughs> um, but what have you been listening to? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Uh, yes. Like it's not just part of the structure of this podcast. No, no, no. I, I, I just thought it was appropriate to ask. Yes, no, thank you so much. You're, uh, you're a polite and, and a good friend. Uh, so just, you know, this week, yesterday, we, uh, this is being recorded uh, on Sunday, and yesterday on Saturday, we lost little Richard. Mm. And I was feeling very antsy yesterday. So I uh, decided to go for a walk out of my apartment since the first time I uh, started quarantining, which was in March, which was on like March 14th. So it's been like almost two full months. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up walking five miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I need to start doing that more i feel like semi-safe doing that uh not 100 safe not uh, like 100 like i'm in a major danger zone but i just wore my mask and kept to myself um and i ended up walking up from my apartment in lower manhattan to washington square park through the west village i visited the theater where my musical went up over uh the fall it's just sort of to reminisce then I bopped over and paid my respects to Gem Spa, which oh, is yes. a very famous uh, corner store bodega that served really, really good egg creams in the East Village and was known to be a big punk and artist hangout. Uh, then I bopped over to former site of CBGB's just to sort of stand there for a while, um, which I was doing normally before this all happened. Anyway, I would always, when I was in the neighborhood, go over to former CBGB's, which is now a John John Varvados, which is more (laughs) important to me than CBGB's ever was, for sure. Yeah, and they've Uh, totally captured the essence. They have. They have by putting a TV screen in the front the place yeah. what is your cvgbs right and they put now, a, a guitar behind glass or something a guitar behind <laughs> glass yeah and uh they sell records for you know 35 dollars each right um <laughs> but yeah, like reissued um you know television records yes <laughs> but that being said i do have those reissued television records on what did he gram colored vinyl and they sound <laughs> very good so if you do like that music it is worth it is worth it uh, yep. those, they were given to me as gifts though so uh, i'm not gonna hate on uh television in any form so yeah exactly exactly uh so but i ended up while walking up i listened to like two hours of little richard mm-hmm. and i all i really want to say because everybody's talking about little Richard in a much more eloquent way than I ever would. But I do think as someone, and this is part of the narrative of this podcast, someone who's trying to reclaim 
his taste in rock and roll as being somewhat of a uh, of a reformation of queer history. Mm. I just want to shout out Little Richard for being like very openly like queer and gay yes. on yep. his own terms. Yes, which is really amazing. Like and, so early on. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, he's he invented. You know, you could make the argument he's the first rock and roll. I mean, the first, you know, Rocky, rock start, rock was gay to begin with. Yeah, exactly, because it was one. Of, he was one of the big, big cornerstone foundations of of what we consider rock and roll. So that's interesting. Uh, and then also too, like his his relationship with religion, which he he never let his uh, his his desires for both men and women get in the way of that, which I think is interesting and hit he himself as a preacher sort of being a religious figure there's just so much about him that's so interesting and he really lived such a such a meaningful huge life uh and then hearing all his stuff in the current moment i just want to say like i feel like it is a essentially good moment to hear a queer african-american man sit at his piano and just be like fucking scream you know <laughs> like uh and that that was something that was brought up by friend of the podcast uh gretchen uh mm. she wrote that on her facebook um and i really agree with it uh there's something very pertinent right now about like the urgency of especially those early tracks you know Yes. So, so yeah, so, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of the fans of this podcast have been listening to little Richard, you know, this week because of uh, his death, but he, he's more than, he's very much worth a revisit right now, regardless of his status still being on the planet or not, you know? Very true. Very yeah. true. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and speaking of rewriting uh, uh, your history, uh, and your, the history of your music taste as being a, a queer history, let's get into X's Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, <laughs> not that uh, I would say that we can, I, I, we can claim these guys as being part of queer rock and roll history. However, um, they did come to prominence in a really wonderfully permissive and creative and inclusive time in hmm. Los Angeles music history. Uh, and they themselves were in their personal lives, like very welcoming and inclusive of a lot of different types of people at the time, hmm. uh, which we'll, which we'll talk about, especially in regards to some of the, the lyrical content on this record mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, so for those of you who do not know, uh, X is a band that was formed in the late 70s by and and are considered a uh uh really the sort of the the best of the best and the most emblematic of the LA punk scene. Mm-hmm. Um the members of X John Doe, Xene Cervenka, Billy Zoom and DJ Bonebreak. <laughs> so now That's his real name well let's get into it um <laughs> so uh john doe's real name is oh man i'm gonna really butcher this pronunciation uh john numison duche <laughs> i oh. think i got that right uh-huh. exine's real name is christine lee Servenka, and billy zoom's real name is Stuart tyson kindle oh yes um DJ Bonebreak's real name is Donald J. Bonebreak. That is, um, what a that's, stunning last name. I know, that's a real chef's kiss of a last name, isn't it? Oh my for, God, for especially for that scene, yeah. <laughs> it's really, um, yeah, so right off the bat, they all, you know, changed their names. Uh, and I think we should get into this, that they are known as... Uh, a group that created a very concrete and very like uh, no nonsense portrayal of Los Angeles at the time. Yes. However, I would argue that they have a lot of influences that are that like old Hollywood 
mm-hmm. uh, sort of theatrical influence. And it really comes out in, <laughs> I feel, the way they dressed, the yep. way they behaved on stage, and, and their names. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, uh, these th- their names as band members, they have my favorite names of any band members in the oh, history yeah. of rock and roll. Yeah. Oh I my just, god. I just adore I I adore their names. There's um, not a, you know, there's not a bad one in the bunch. No, there isn't a, there isn't a bad one in the bunch and also like I think that if you tell people who maybe haven't heard their music what their names are, they're going to figure out pretty quickly where the band is coming from. Yeah, it definitely that's their the, the names is the north star if you haven't heard it yet. Yeah, seriously. Like it's not like um you know just to be a real goof, to be like, yeah, there's a man named Davy Jones and the Monkees. Like, <laughs> oh, is is it pirate music? You know, <laughs> right, 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 right. It's right. not the case with this. Like, or it's... Paul Revere and the Raiders. Totally, <laughs> totally. Although Paul Revere and the Raiders does get into sort of some Americana stuff that I feel is totally correct. Sure, in sure. terms of their their overall uh, music, you know, their discography. But yeah, so. These guys uh, reformed uh, 76, 77, uh, and they reformed, um, both John Doe and Billy Zoom were new to Los Angeles. Uh, Three of the members of this band are originally from Illinois, weirdly enough. Um, Mm -hmm. The only one that isn't, who's a California native, LA native, is uh, Mr. Bonebreak himself, Donald (laughs) J., Uh, yeah. Um, and both John Doe and Billy Zoom put ads in the Recycler, which was a LA, uh, free weekly about wanting to start a band that apparently the ads were somewhat similar. They wanted to start a band that played fast, like the Ramones. That was an early influence. So they found each other because they both basically published the same ad, which was really fun. Um, similar to the way the Pixies were formed as well, mm, yeah. uh, interestingly. And then uh, John Doe met Exene uh, at a Venice bookstore where there were poetry readings. Uh, and they were, because they were both interested in poetry, Exene had very, uh, uh, like it was a current thing, had just moved from Florida. She was living in um, some, oh, Tallahassee. <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to get the fuck out of there and was sort of willing to move anywhere and someone apparently was allowing her to stay in uh in the California area uh, or just in California and then she ended up getting a place a small apartment in Venice which at the time was a very cheap and somewhat dangerous neighborhood which is certainly not the case anymore so they met there they started dating John Doe always felt that Exine's poems that she was writing sounded like songs then Exene started hanging out at band practices that John and Billy were having together and started suggesting lyrics. And uh, according to Billy, he was worried. He was like, oh no, who's this girlfriend? Is this going to be a crazy girlfriend of a rock and roll guy? <laughs> and then he was like, oh, well, she is crazy, but these are great lyrics and she's really writing from a good place. Uh-huh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm joking. Exene is great and a really fast a really fascinating woman um so yeah so by the time that this album was recorded which was in january of 1980 they'd been around for a few years and they were really part of the la punk scene percolating mm-hmm. uh which exine describes as being just incredibly open and there being absolutely no expectations about any way that you needed to sound or behave or what you were going for, which led to a real variety in, in the different types of bands. Which I think was probably similar just in terms of the creative energy, like in the, you know, CBGB's 1975, you know, famously, totally. none of those bands, they, they say it's the birthplace of punk, but none of those bands sounded anything like each other. Very much so. Yeah, totally. I, I think that the scenes are very similar. You know, coming up uh, out of the L.A. punk scene along, just to, to name a few bands, uh, there's, you know, X, uh, who I would describe as like 
razor sharp rockabilly punk. That's sort of how I would describe them. I'd also describe right. X as an Americana band, uh, which we'll get into, um, and somewhat of a roots rock band. Yes. Yeah. That's a phrase I see using a lot. Yeah, totally. And then um and then there's also uh uh the Go-Go's who we've talked about on this podcast before who uh owe a lot more to girl groups and surf music or you know a band like the Stray Cats who are I would describe as like a real like veer towards like a, almost like a rockabilly swing band and I think like I have no some of that stuff is fun but I think that's where you started to venture more into it's like a little more of a corny gimmick that I think a lot of the like psychobilly kind of like revivalist thing that started happening um kind of went more in that direction but I think X kind of bridged the gap nicely yeah uh, I agree and I think it has a lot to do with where they were writing from and uh, sort of what they were trying to say with mm-hmm. their music, uh, which is a good place to get into like this actual album, uh, which is top to tail, uh, like known to be a classic. Uh, this isn't one of the, I don't feel like this is like one that we yes. don't, uh, you know, like music critics acknowledge this to be like one of the best albums of the 80s it sold fairly well it it wasn't like a big breakout hit x never had a big breakout hit they've always been sort of this weird cult band uh i think one of the reasons for that is because the music press was focused on what was happening in in new york and london when it comes to punk music and uh they never really gave x enough focus when i think x is like absolutely one of the best punk bands of all time uh if not maybe the best punk band of all time. yes like, they're definitely up there for me with the ramones wow he heard it here <laughs> oh yeah you know this isn't a surprise yeah. um on a personal mm-hmm. note um i've seen x like eight or nine times live and I've yeah seen- tell me a little bit more about your relationship to x because i think it's a great band but um I don't know. I'm curious about what what your relationship with the band is. Definitely. I'm more than happy to talk about them. So I learned about X through a wonderful book that I love that is uh, called um, Dangerous Angels, which is written by an L.A. author named Francesca Leah Block, which is a sort of um, magic realism fairy tale written for young adults. Hmm. Uh, that is takes place in Los Angeles in the early 80s and features a woman named Wheatsy Bat and her best friend, Dirk. <laughs> uh, and uh, Dirk dresses like he's James Dean and drives around in a, you know, Chevy convertible. So the Billy Zoom character. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> and Wheatsy Bat dresses in thrift store clothes and... So the Exine character. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) And uh, Dirk goes and sees X play during a pretty pivotal moment of the book where he's dealing with the fact that he's gay and having a really hard time with it. Hmm. And there's a really wonderful sequence where he's slamming around in the pit with a bunch of male bodies (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> listening to X um, and, and, and it mentions Xene specifically. I think that the song that's specifically dropped in the book is the world's a mess. It's in my kiss, which is mm. my pick. Yes. Um, so that's how I heard about X. And even without hearing them, I knew what they sounded like from that passage. You know, mm-hmm. I just had a feeling and I, I, I loved the, the name and the aesthetic. It made so much sense to me. Um, and then, uh, an improv teacher of mine uh, at Upright Citizens Brigade was a fan. Um, Julie Brister said that she used to uh, clean her house and listen to X. And then Los Angeles was on sale for $5 at a Tower Records. Wow. And that's when I picked it up. And it was really love at first listen. It just mm. made a lot of sense to me. Interesting. Uh, the intertwining vocals 
uh, I think where the first thing that really struck me as, as being like kind of huge and important and register as being something I really loved the, the vocals between John Doe and Exene, which just constantly sound like two people in love, but their love is falling apart in front of you. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really well said and an amazing point about the unique um, quality of the blending of voices between John Doe and Exene. I think it's this incredible um, pairing because sometimes they blend really nicely and have these kind of quirky harmonies. And then other times they're not even harmonizing. They're singing the same notes and it, or it just sounds like two people singing at the same time, which also um, – uh, has this like incredible kind of quality that draws you in. You know, I, I saw the comparison, like they are like the, uh, you know, the punk Johnny Cash and June Carter. And I think that's like a really interesting comparison. I think that's really smart. I agree with that 100%. Um, definitely there is something about the way that they play off of each other that shows that they just have such an intimate relationship, yeah. which is such a good comparison to, you know, June Carter and Johnny Cash for sure. Um, and then also just technically something that's really interesting is that, you know, Exene wasn't a trained singer. Right. And apparently a lot of their vocal blend has to do with her uh, just having really good instincts intentionally as to when to be in harmony and in, in sync with him and when to fall out of sync yes. and sort of segue in and out of that. And that was all kind of deciding on um, melody lines that, John Doe would decide on while he was writing the songs, which is mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to the first song uh, that we're going to cover today. Um, let's listen to Johnny Hit and Run Pauline. All right. Yeah, <laughs> and, baby. And it's a good example of that vocal blend. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. So, yeah, let's get into it. It got 24 hours Shoot off all his between the legs 96 tears through 24 hours uh, Sex once every hour Johnny hit the run, Pauline Johnny hit the run, Pauline <laughs> so uh this is your choice uh and it's a good one i actually think that we chose uh this week the three best songs from the album yeah uh my my choice is the world's a mess it's in my kiss and then we're gonna cover the, t the titular track los angeles mm -hmm. but, uh why johnny hit and run pauline for you well, I think this, um, I mean, what I love most about X is the, this really cool blend, like, for me, I mean, we've talked about the Leuven Brothers on the show, which, who, um, John Doe and Xene definitely love, that would be an influence, like, that early, uh, kind of roots country, um, and, like, early rock and roll and rockabilly. Definitely. So that, that blending in X's music is my favorite part, um, and actually, before... Uh, I mean, probably e before really diving in again to this album, I'm a huge fan of their side project, The Knitters. Yes. Um, they released one album called Poor Little Critter on the Road, um, which is just kind of their kind of stripped down um, kind of country album. Well, well um, The Knitters actually really fits with uh, what we're talking about here with this song specifically. Yes, that's I think why I gravitated to this song, because I was like, this could be... Uh, this is, we're heading into the, toward the, the knitters. Yes, however, I'm going to argue, I'm going to push back a little bit against that. Sure. Because of Billy Zoom's, like, really wild 50s rock and roll guitar line on this. Yes, yeah, and it definitely kicks it off with a clear Chuck Berry homage. And yes. clearly, he, it, it, there's Chuck Berry all over this thing. Yeah, and all Billy, over this record, yeah. Yep. And, and um, apparently Billy Zoom was very specific in the types of 
uh, music he wanted to play with X. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was sort of the push and pull between Billy Zoom's more uh, rockabilly tinged influence and like old school, uh, old school rock and roll influence and John Doe's country influence that made X work. Because yeah. once Billy left the band, those albums that uh, came out uh, post Billy Zoom sound a lot more like uh, country albums. Mm, They're much sure. more country tinged. Yeah, yeah, um, huh? yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's that's what I think. You know, gives the early X the sound is, is that push and pull. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. No, I think I think that is very true. Because um, yeah, famously Billy Zoom was not in. I don't know. Famously, no one really listened to the knitters. They did not. Have, they weren't that successful. But uh, he wasn't in. He w- he was the only member of the band not in the knitters. But yeah, um, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. And and but also the where this uh, kind of fits in. This is the second song on the album, and the first song, uh, your phone's off the hook, but you're not. That's a pretty clear, straightforward Ramones influenced punk song. Yes. Right. I think we're getting a lot less of the rockabilly 50s thing on that song and then so that song is kind of leading you in like oh this is a really good you know late 70s early 80s punk song Mm -hmm. and then this song kicks off and it tells you no we're getting something very different on this album as well Um, (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you know i mean my favorite you know i think this this um this album came out in 1980 um right 1980 yep that's right yeah yep. 1980 um actually it just celebrated its 40th anniversary it came out april 26th 1980 happy birthday yeah um and uh but yeah um you know this is this was like kind of the coolest um era of punk and when post-punk started happening and i think you know across the board i think a lot of our favorite music is when you know punk you know famously stripped pop and rock down to the studs and then it really which was great and then it really started getting interesting when people from different scenes started building something new on that foundation and i think you know building off that clear and deliberate ramones influence which you hear even all over this song um and then you know they just the you know x and and some other you know la bands started to add to that foundation um these you know, 50s elements, the rockabilly, um, the country, and that's what really, I think, set them apart in such a fun way. Uh, well put. I 100% agree with that. Um, and also, just like sort of this, um, uh, I think just this pervasive attitude that they didn't have to sound any which way mm, to right. be in this scene. It was It yes. was such an inclusive... It was really an inclusive scene. It was quite multiracial as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot of different influences. Um, uh, you know, very permissive when it came to different types of sexualities as well at this point in this in this scene. Um, and I think that it, it just it just led to uh, you know these uh, these musicians really feeling open to being experimental. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while still being considered punk you know um but you know i guess i guess really what made these guys so punk is that they performed at clubs like the mask where you know it's a surprise not everybody just died in a fire there or some shit (laughs) (laughs) you know like um now lyrically i want to talk a little bit about this song as well because it is uh literally it's it's about like a some sort of like sex psycho who's injecting women with a with a sex drug um and the the sex psycho is um you know there's a line the last pauline wouldn't cooperate so you know what's really great about that is it's it's some man who's calling multiple women pauline you know what i mean Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, but then it's, it's sort of, so it sort of has this like noir sort of true crime through line, you know, it seems like what happens in the song is that one of the abducted women who he's, you know, trying to 
injects with this drug. She dies and then he finds clumps of her hair. You know, it's like sort of graphic and, and gritty and, you know, apparently a big influence specifically, specifically on John Doe was the work of Raymond Chandler mm-hmm. <laughs> was a um, noir uh, writer uh, who wrote a lot about the seedy underbelly of, of Los Angeles. And then also Charles Bukowski. Yeah. Uh, which is not, not a big surprise as well. Bukowski who also wrote a lot of noir, uh, but his stuff is a lot more kind of messy and visceral. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's, but it's sort of what I love about it. And I feel like this is, this is the exine influence on everything is it sort of transcends just being a literal song about like this sort of depraved subject matter and kind of just becomes, uh, a bigger metaphor for, uh, sort of just like abject alienation. Yes. (laughs) You know, like, which is really cool. Um, uh, there's that line in here. Uh, she wasn't what you'd call living, really, <laughs> mm-hmm. which okay. I think is so good. <laughs> it's like, so has he murdered her? Is she dead, or is she just apathetic to the entire situation? You know, right? Or it's it's even talking maybe a little bit about you know, you know, fuck it. Her life was. She she wasn't living even up to this moment, and now she's kind of trapped here in this sort of depraved situation. I think that's what set them apart. And actually, this song in particular, the lyrics is what... Uh, now we can mention the producer on this album. Oh, yeah, we haven't who, talked about that yet. <laughs> yes, and it was this song that co- sort of caught his attention, but not musically. It was the lyrics that he saw first. And he's, I think they've said it, he kind of not only gravitated towards Exine's poetry, but, um, you know, in their songs, they kind of paint these little macabre, grotesque, short stories about L.A. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this song definitely lyrically does that. But the producer was, who was gravitated toward the song, was Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist for The Doors. Yeah. And he even plays keys uh on a few tracks on this album yeah um the i think people have mixed opinions about that element i think it works well in some places and not so well in others on this album that's yeah Um, agreed and sometimes it's a little too far forward and that's probably the case on a lot of doors songs too but (laughs) um (laughs) well well it's interesting i kind of think that x does the doors better than the doors did the doors i agree i agree (laughs) especially on um uh on the unheard music um like they get into this psychedelic uh kind of like zone out uh trippy uh, thing that on these like pre-courses of that song um, but they don't you know it doesn't last seven minutes like the doors and it's not self-indulgent it like serves a purpose yeah totally <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yep. uh, and it's it is it's an interesting connection now John apparently John Doe all of them adored the doors yeah and Exine has said in interviews that she really considers herself um just a uh uh that she considers herself just a continuation on you know of sort of the like california youth culture uh of like the 50s 60s into the 70s right which is which is interesting because she says that a lot of the other people that she was in the punk scene with, they didn't really have that influence or they didn't really care for it or appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, these guys weren't the types of punks that were like, fuck you hippie punks. I mm. think that they were, but I also don't think that these guys were at all representing any sort of hippie revival of right. any sort, a late seventies hippie, you know, throwback thing. I think it's more that they, um, appreciated sort of the more sort of strange and like dense and obtuse elements of like late seventies, uh, hippie culture, you know, like, like the doors being an influence and, and apparently they, they enjoyed like Jefferson airplane as well, Mm -hmm. you know, and that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, 
And yeah. those are those are also I think what they I think they were gravitated towards like LA um Arcana, you know, and I think those two bands that's like California, that's like 60s California. Yeah, very much so. Uh absolutely. And they were just interested in Arcana in general like uh if you've uh I highly recommend it, the 1986 documentary about them, The Unheard Music. Mm-hmm. There's uh a lot of really great shots from inside Exine and John Doe's place. Mm-hmm. And it's just filled with different types of sort of occult bric-a-brac, arcana, voodoo, yeah. uh imagery, sugar skulls, patterned uh patterned fabric on walls. Uh, and it's a great aesthetic, and, and it, there's something that's, like, sort of deep and mystical and dark and strange about it that, to me, is, like, very L.A. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> so I love it. So. <laughs> um, awesome. Should we, what do you think? Should we talk about the next song? Should we listen to a little bit of it? The World's yeah. a Mess in My Kiss? let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's listen to a little bit of The World's a Mess in My Kiss. Manzarek's uh, organ on that one. Um, Too far I, forward for you? What are, you what's your, what are your thoughts? No, I think I think maybe later in the song, it, he I think he kind of it goes into a, a a crazy solo. Yes, yes, that. But I think uh, it's it, he he. I, I don't mind it um, on the rest of the song, and I think it's a, more understated on the rest of the song. It works well. Yeah, that's and he kind of uses fair. it as like a rhythmic instrument, which I think. When he does that, I think it works best. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the final track on the album. Mm. And I think that this is... They've said uh, that they feel that this whole album is almost like a soundtrack. And it's almost like a, a, a some sort of like tapestry that weaves its way through. Like, not quite a concept album. Mm. But that they feel that it's all part of a whole. And they had a lot of other songs at the time that ended up on their second album, Wild Gift. Mm. But these songs in this order were specifically the songs that Manzarek chose for them to record and the order he wanted them in. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this song is sort of, they're writing from a lot of different perspectives. You know, they're writing from the, the perspective in Johnny Hit and Run Pauline of this like depraved guy. Uh, they're writing from the perspective of a of a woman who's gone off the deep end in Los Angeles, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And then this song, though, feels more personal, like it's yeah. written about them, and mm-hmm. it's perhaps written about John and Exene specifically. Yep. So Exene wrote this mainly when she was on a little trip uh, out to Baltimore in 1978, interestingly enough. And she, in an interview, described the Baltimore that she wrote this song in as John Waters' Baltimore, which Mm. went out. And she said, like, it was the sort of place where if you were there for any extended period of time, there's no way that you wouldn't, um, that you wouldn't uh, feel compelled to create something around it. Mm. Uh, And I think it is, it's, it's interesting. I think that, there's some elements to this song. Uh, there, there's the lyrics, drag the system, drag the head and body uh, in here, <laughs> which I think is definitely a really nice, subtle nod to uh, sort of themes of systematic oppression. Hmm. 
and and how that oppression um, can prey on one's body, you know, uh. which which I really like. Um, and then that also comes right after this lyric, pull it out at the bottom of the nine. Mm-hmm. Such a good, like, little baseball analogy in there, which I think just really hits what up a, their yeah, Americana folk roots, you know? And it's, like, so uh, evocatively sexual as well. Like, the yes, word pull it, pull it out and the baseball terminology is uh, famously sexual, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, good point in there, yeah. And then, and then the first lines of the song are so cool and clearly were written as as a poem more than a song because they make more it makes more sense as a as a poem that you are reading no one is united all things are untied <laughs> yeah. uh so uh all we did is switch a t and an i there and we get a, <laughs> a whole new meaning which is really cool and then from a a, a personal perspective for me Mm -hmm. uh uh i really gravitate towards the the chorus the title of the song the world's a mess it's in my kiss Mm -hmm. uh when feeling messed up uh romantically uh i think this song sort of uh just encapsulates some sort of um like sexual and like desperate longing for normalcy instead of tumultuousness when it comes to matters of the heart, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's such a... I mean, if X was going to write a love song, this is, this would be it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then there's also lines in this. At the end, um, there's an interchange between uh, Exine and John Doe, where John is continuing to sing the chorus, The World's a Mess is in My Kiss, and then she's inter changing back and forth. And one of the main lines that she sings multiple times is both moons are full, like a lovely wife, <laughs> <laughs> which is somewhat, somewhat hopeful, I would say. And somewhat, um, you know, uh, there's, there's definitely like a tinge of optimism in there. Um, mm. and a tinge of like living in the moment, um, which I think is an important thing to mention. And, and, you know, they, uh, really endeavored, to stay upbeat and frenetic a lot of the time. They did want their listeners to be having fun mm. while watching them play. Uh, they weren't, a, X are not a misery. X for me, or I have such a good time when I go see X. I dance yeah. my fucking ass off, you know? I mean, this song especially, I mean, this is, uh, you know, like, um, it's like, it feels like you're in the, like, a, a, the, it's like a sock hop, you know? Yeah. Or like a greasy diner, you know? Like, it feels like this could be almost like a musical number, people jumping on the tables, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it, does, it does connote sort of that, like, movie musical imagery, you know? Definitely. And, and that's the thing is, like, they, they were sort of dark and frank and, and very matter of fact, but they were so, you know, as I said before, they were such a product of, and, and, you know, and, and had such a love of old Hollywood. Yes. Um, just, it's just sort of through this like cracked, you know, lens, a lens that's been maybe out partying all night much, <laughs> you know, uh, with Belinda Carlisle, you know. Um, <laughs> and Jane Wheatland. Yeah, and Jane and uh, Charlotte Caffey, who <laughs> uh, DJ Bonebreak was in a band with called The Eyes before they oh. joined their respective bands. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is a great end to the album. And the second side of this album starts with our final song, their anthemic yes. Los Angeles, which is just like, it's a it's a stone cold kick the jukebox classic <laughs> for sure. Let's listen to a little bit of it and we'll talk about Los Angeles.
just because we I don't feel we talked about it enough that wonderful just like aggressive drumming from DJ Bonebreak on all these tracks that just propel the band forward yeah. in this like frenetic and like unstoppable way yeah and I think that's a good time to mention what I think set this band apart from a lot of other punk bands and it's one of those you know I compared them to the Brad Bra- Bad Brains in this way of these were all um, profession, especially Billy Zoom and DJ Bonebreak, but even John Doe. These are very good musicians. Oh, like clearly, yeah. You know, in the documentary, there's a, there's a scene of um, you know, um, one Billy Zoom playing like this gorgeous like early bebop like uh, clarinet solo. Yes, and then um, <laughs> then there's a scene yeah, of Billy DJ Zoom Bo- apparently could play like all instruments ever yeah has been able to since he was a child because his father was a musician there was just there was instruments and music around the house for the whole time he was growing up right and and then there's a scene of dj bone break describing this like insanely complex (laughs) polyrhythm that he came up with and i'm like what the fuck yes uh (laughs) yeah so just to mention you know these guys but i think what's cool is that these are very proficient music musicians who also respect and completely understand punk. And it doesn't feel like they are, you know, taking advantage of a movement or they are co-opting the sound. I think they genuinely had a love for punk music and like, you know, a lot of other different styles of music too. Oh, very much so. And is evident in all the side projects for sure. Right has always loved playing jazz and for a while had an ensemble called the bone break syncopators, <laughs> which was a sort of a, a, a Latin jazz ensemble. Wow. So that's super cool. Uh, you know, but they, they've all, always really loved X as well and like had a great respect for X. And like, there was a period where the band broke up for a while, uh, you know, had a hiatus, but, it was pretty short lived. It was only like a period of like maybe five years in the grand scheme of things. And then they were back at it. And I think it's because they genuinely love it. You mm-hmm. know, apparently they just really, really love playing together. Um, and, you know, John Doe and Exene are no longer together. Uh, but that has not stopped them from being able to work together really well, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. Yep. Um, so this, this song uh is about a woman and it's somewhat based on a friend of theirs who had had enough of LA and moved to England. Yep. Um, but it was, it's about a woman who sort of is driven insane by Los Angeles becomes mm-hmm. a raving racist. Yes. And homophobe. Yep. And then, fl- you know, flies, flies out to, to England, to London. Um, and this has caused uh, problems because the song uses the N word mm-hmm. uh, and the song also talks pretty meanly about Jews and about gays. Uh, but it's like so clearly written in it's written as it's in the perspective of someone else and not a band member. Right. But they have had, um, problems with this uh they also this happens to be their most famous yes exactly (laughs) like their major major anthem and and i by the way i I first this is probably the first x song i ever heard and i didn't realize it because it was on the soundtrack for tony hawk uh underground 2 yes yes but that's actually important i heard tony hawk interviewed in prep for this uh podcast because he was interviewed alongside John Doe, uh, a lot of the other guys for John Doe's second book, um, Under the Big Black Sun, which is uh, a history of L.A. punk sort of from the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And Tony Hawk contributes a chapter. And Tony Hawk says that he really intentionally tried to get a lot of that music into those games so the kids like you would hear it because he thought it was important and was had to do with with the scene in a wow. way really intrinsic and and uh you know he compares the creativity behind the skateboarding scene with the creativity in like the early LA scene yeah and and uh you know he says that a lot of kids that he knows 
because of Tony Hawk Pro Skater can sing the lyrics to Los Angeles, which is amazing. That and um, Black Flag, I was deliberately or, or directly um, introduced to and influenced my taste. And that came directly from Tony Hawk uh, pro skater <laughs> yeah and that's awesome i think that's a great use of like this your licensed video game you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's that's great um so just getting back to the to the song um something that john doe says about the song that i think is really really interesting is that it's a statement on the culture shock that a lot of like sort of more white Midwesterner people went through when they moved to Los Angeles and them experiencing the first like real American melting pot for the first Mm -hmm. time. Right. And that he said that something that he was noticing when he was writing the song is that it didn't matter if a person was liberal or if a person was conservative, uh, if they were getting fed up with living in Los Angeles for whatever reason, they would more often than not take it out on minorities. Uh, you know, they, they would make minorities the reason why they would be leaving Los Angeles. Yeah, it feels like a bit, just in terms of the the energy and the worldview expressed in the song, it's like a West Coast taxi driver thing, you know? It's like... Totally. You, you Your own uh, social alienation and isolation is... First of all, it's exact. You know, the more people around... I feel like you, you know, you're going to feel more lonely and isolated in New York than you will in a cornfield in Nebraska, you know, sure. because you're surrounded by people and you feel so alone and isolated and alienated. And, you know, you, you take it out on the filth and the garbage. And when you're, uh, and when you, uh, you know, I think that's a great point. It's like, regardless of your worldview, you take it out on other people. And if you're not sophisticated, then, you know, human beings, um, I think that tend, tend, you know, tending to generalize about groups of people uh, in order to, you know, placate your own dissatisfaction in your life and your own loneliness. I think that's, that is an element of human nature that will always be there and is exacerbated by cities. Very much so. Uh, And I think that this, captures those sentiments really well. However, you know, something that's really rough about this song is that it was written from the perspective that this was, this was the, the wrong perspective, you know, that we're supposed to be welcoming and inclusive and that it only makes one's life better. And that apparently when they stopped, they, they didn't play this in sets for two years Mm. uh, in the like uh, early, 20 teens uh Mm -hmm. they stopped playing this because they were dropping the the Mm n-bomb and uh they felt really awful doing it and also saw a lot of people attending their shows who they felt were singing along to the song right ironically and it was really hard on them because it wasn't where they how they felt you know Mm -hmm. yes Uh, and that's and that's so hard. So they've actually changed the lyrics of the song so that they no longer say the N word during the song. Interesting. Yeah, which is because they really they, people were like, "No, you have to get this back in. You have to get this back in your your sets. This is really you know this is your most important song." Yeah. Um, but it it definitely sort of teeters on like it really flips perspectives back and forth in such an interesting way. And there are moments when you're listening to the song where you think LA is really being portrayed as a cesspool. Mm -hmm. And then there's other elements where I feel like the, the, the woman described in the song is sort of regretting her choices to leave, Mm -hmm. which I think is so cool. Um, I love there's the, 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 the part in this, that is she bought a clock on Hollywood Boulevard and there she went. And uh, apparently their friend who left did buy a clock on Hollywood Boulevard right before she left. (laughs) And then the next line after that is it felt sad. It felt (laughs) sad, which is just so nice. And like, it's such a, it's such a great flat out statement in, in a song like this. It's like, there's nothing about it. It doesn't mean anything else like this. There's no way to slice it. It's a sad moment. You know, right. Sad in every sense of the word, like sad in terms of like unfortunate, sad in terms of maybe like 
pathetic, sad yeah. in terms of, um, you know, I think that's why something, a line as simple as that when deployed well can just really, um, I mean, it's so effective. Yeah, very much agreed. It is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of, it's blunt, but it's got a lot of layers there. Totally. Yeah, which is really, really, really cool. And and then musically, I think that th- this song, you know, really is them at their best in terms of uh, just Billy Zoom's like, you know, percussive guitar playing. Yeah. Uh, uh, DJ Bone Breaks drums behind it. Uh, John Doe's bass is great in this. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's a real, it's a real gem of a song, and it's yeah. the sort of song that. Um, I think that you can listen to it and it's a little hard to place what era it's from and a little mm-hmm. hard to um, to even figure out sort of where it's coming from genre wise. It's just sort of, it's just sort of stands alone as its own thing. For sure. I, I definitely hear, you know, this is one of those great songs too. And I think a lot of the songs we covered fall into this category of like, okay, we have a Ramones template, but we've made something new. Yes, very much so, very much so. I mean, you'd never mistake this for a Ramones song. Mm-mm. There's no way. Uh, also, yeah, the Ramones just didn't even write about stuff like this. This is different. Sure, right. Yeah, this isn't even 53rd and 3rd, you know? This right. is a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in in closing, you know... I just want to say having seen these guys, you know, eight, nine times over the years, they're really just one of the most fun bands to see live. Mm. I think something that has always struck me seeing them live is that they have a rich sort of grandioseness to their sound, Mm. which connotes kind of an infinite possibility. Mm. I feel is so LA it's also so American in a way that New York bands are not yes. uh, as well, um, where it, 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 there is sort of this, like, I don't know, there's, it's like this uh, Jack Kerouac on the road kind of, like, <laughs> giants, <laughs> you know. And, early, and we're getting some early, like, desert rock thing that only sure. happens in L.A., you know? It's like, yeah, you have that image of, like, um, it's like that, you know, LA diner culture, you know, Cadillacs in the desert, but like turned on its head and, and, you know, distorted and demented. Yeah. Distorted and demented for the purposes of like getting to some like deeper truths. Yep. And I'd, I'd argue that this album is really fun to listen to back to back with the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat, mm-hmm. which I think is doing a lot of the same things but just uh, from a different songwriting perspective mm-hmm. but from the same scene. Yep. Totally. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely part of that LA big music firmament, which I'm a huge fan of. And yeah, listening to this album this week, it totally makes me miss Los Angeles. Uh, I love visiting LA. LA is the best. <laughs> well, uh, you heard it here first. I've never been to LA. I've never been to California. It kind of freaks me out. I, I would say I'm I'm a New York person through and through, but I mean, I'll get there. Oh yeah. And when you get there, you're going to like it so much. <laughs> it's going to be the funniest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as I get there, I'll be sure to let the kick the jukebox fans know first. Oh, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been another episode of kick the jukebox. Uh, you can follow us on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, even Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> even Instagram, e- even Instagram. Um, this has been such a treat. Uh, if you want to throw us a few bucks for the amount of time and care we're putting into this uh, podcast, uh, feel free to, but definitely like it's all good if you can't. Um, but uh, my Venmo is at Louis four, seven, one, one Kyle, your Venmo Kyle dash Gordon dash two. That's right. Yeah. But you know, definitely give your money to charities that are supporting first mm-hmm. responders and all that stuff before us. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. We're just two geeks hanging out in our uh, in our living rooms uh, talking about music. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> well, Kyle, it's been great. Listeners, it's been great. 
And uh, we'll catch you in another episode of Kick the Jukebox. We'll see you around like a record. It's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!